Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author and world traveler, Sherry Knowlton. She's the author of Beyond the Sunset, Volumes 1 and 2. From Woodstock to the Okavango, how a book found turned flower child, turned healthcare executive, found joy in traveling the world. Structured in a series of essays and anecdotes, this memoir tells the story of a small town Pennsylvania girl who stretched her horizons, tested her limits, and traveled all over the globe. These essays address topics as diverse as modes of transportation, wild animal encounters, Indiana Jones moments, and people met along the way. They also include practical travel tips gained through first-hand experience. Augmented by stunning photos by Knowlton and her husband, Beyond the Sunset is a love letter to all those explorers with a 9-to-5 job and a zest for travel. Sherry Knowlton is the award-winning author of the Alexa Williams suspense novels, Dead of Autumn, Dead of Summer, Dead of Spring, A Lot of Dead Here, and Dead on the Delta. She spent much of her early career in state government working primarily with social and human service programs. In the 1990s, she served as the Deputy Secretary for Medical Assistance in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, now retired from executive positions in the health industry. Uh, Sherry runs her own healthcare consulting business. She draws on her professional background and global travel experiences as inspirations for her novels. She also uses her writing as a platform to shed light on social issues affecting our world today. Sherry lives in the mountains of south-central Pennsylvania. She's also a member of the International Thriller Writers and Sisters in Crime and Pen Writers. Sherry Knowlton, I'm out of breath reading that, that introduction. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and you didn't have to read all of that. No, but I, I wanted to because, I, I, you know, usually I cut it back and— uh, you know, trim it down because you know there's a lot of superfluous, you know, things that maybe are a little redundant or whatever. But no, you've had a fantastic career, very diverse background, and you've now written quite a few books. I know we've published six, seven books now. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, and I know we started out with your mystery novels, and uh, they're, you know, they received great reviews. And now we're into travel. So, and I know the novels also have elements of travel in some of them. But we'll talk first about uh, Beyond the Sunset. And I know a little while back I had encouraged you to do some nonfiction. And uh, I'm glad you did because I think these are, these are wonderful books. Uh, give us an idea of uh, sort of how you came about this, you know, the kinds of essays that you have. What, what made something on your trips worthwhile to, to write about? I guess, um, yeah, I can talk about two things. The, the travel itself, um, it's just one of those things that I've always wanted to do since I was a, a young kid. Um, and growing up in Chambersburg in the 50s, sort of a pretty insular environment. Um, it was post-war. My father didn't want to travel because he'd been to France and seen things I guess he didn't want to see again. Um, and uh, 
we basically did, you know, things around the 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 area, uh, and once in a while, my grandmother took me to visit relatives at different places on the East Coast. But I read a lot. Reading was my main pastime, and I read about all these exotic places. And I said to myself, "Well, I want to go there. I want to go there." And then finally, when I got older, I did. I started to go to all of those places. Um, now, the book itself, as you say, we did talk uh, about, you know, writing nonfiction, and this was just a little bit before the pandemic. People had also been encouraging me to write down some of the stories that my husband and I would tell about our trips when we came home. And during the pandemic, we couldn't travel. So I decided this is the perfect time to relive where we've already been uh, and capture um, some of those adventures on the, on the page. Uh, and uh, I ended up having so many that you said, let's divide it into two. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say thank God for the pandemic so you could write these books, but then I thought, no, uh, that'd be a terrible thing to say because, <laughs> no, no. you know, it almost took my life and all these other people that were affected so horribly by it. And But, you know, there if there is a silver lining, it is that it gave you the time to uh, reflect and write uh, these wonderful essays that, that make up these books. You know, I'm struck by uh, – I myself have traveled quite a bit – but I have not gone anywhere near some of the places that you've gone, and and perhaps that's more my travel. A lot of it was business oriented, Europe and Central America, the islands for leisure. But you've you've uh, crossed other oceans I haven't crossed, and you've done some safaris and things. So, w- just just give us a flavor of some of the most far flung places. Like, was there a particular place that you even thought might be uh, challenging, really a stretch for you two to do? Um, yeah, <laughs> um, a few of them. Um, I, I must admit uh, to being very nervous the first time we went to Africa on a safari, and that first safari was in East Africa, which is actually, now I know, um, you know, much more populated, much more popular uh, with uh, tourists to do safari. Um, but uh, some of the other places, um, far-flung um, New Zealand, uh, which is probably the furthest we've traveled in terms of uh, flight time. Uh, but we did a sailing a cruise of the islands of Indonesia, and we got pretty, pretty far out. Um, We've been up the Amazon River now um, on the Peruvian side uh, into the tributaries of the Amazon. And that's a, a voyage where, as you go, you keep getting more and more and more remote. Um, and, you know, we didn't see any tribes with dart guns or anything like yeah, I was that. I just going to ask if any poison darts whizzed by your ear. But <laughs> okay. No. They were all very friendly people that we that we encountered, but you know the, some of those places are really you know out, outside the comfort zone, which is one of the reasons that uh, you know I I entitled the subtitled the first volume Adventures Outside My Comfort Zone because some of them really have been. Yeah, yeah. 
How many shots do you have to take before you go on some of these trips? Do you really, you, I know you have to get inoculated or prove that you've been. Oh, we like to joke, my husband Mike and I, that we probably have every vaccination known to man um, except rabies. Um, (laughs) Some of the more exotic ones, um, when you go to um, places like Africa and uh, Southeast Asia, especially since we've gone to pretty remote locations, uh, we need to take um, things like... um, uh, yellow fever in some countries. Uh, when we went to Southeast Asia, we had to get vaccinated for Japanese encephalitis, wow. which I'd never even heard of before we got vaccinated before for it. Um, and so there's, a, you know, of course, there's all the standards, the typhoid, the hepatitis, uh, all of that. But we probably have cards that have like 10, 12, 13 types of vaccination. Jeez. Well, I was going to ask you. The only one we don't have is rabies. Um, We've, (laughs) uh, you can get uh, preventive rabies, which actually doesn't prevent it. It just makes the shot process easier if you get bitten or have a bat land on your head or something. Um, (laughs) But uh, we have, we've chosen not to because we haven't quite been remote enough to need that yet. I wanted to ask you one more question before our first break. Your passports must be full of stamps. And uh, I always was amazed when I looked at my own and got a different country. How many countries overall have you been to? Over 50. Um, And we've been on six continents. We've never been to Antarctica. Uh, and probably I don't have much interest in going to Antarctica. Too cold. Uh, But uh, 50 50 countries and counting. Wow. And on that note, we're going to take our first break. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent and diverse authors. Check out the Agency Books imprint for detective, law enforcement, espionage, terrorism, spy thrillers, and more. Among the works available, The Apologist, a Luke Lundy novel by A.A. Weiss, J.A. Walsh's Purpose of Evasion, and Douglas Brody's Sand, or Once Upon a Time in the Jazz Age. Find these and other fascinating books at sunburypress.com. We're back with Sherry Knowlton talking about Beyond the Sunset, Volumes 1 and 2, and the 50-plus countries and six continents that she's been to. I get you not wanting to go to Antarctica. You can just watch the Penguin movie, and you can learn everything you need to know about it. Um, But um, I am also intrigued by the Indiana Jones moments. Now, I don't want to give away too much of the books because, you know, we'd love people to purchase them, read them, and so on. But tease us with an Indiana Jones moment, if you don't mind. Uh, Okay. Uh, And what I um, call Indiana Jones moments are when when I've, you know, been uh, in a place or done something, and it's like, oh, you you know, you expect Indiana Jones to just pop around the corner because this is one of the exotic-type things that he would do. Um, I guess the one I'll mention is about, oh, this is probably about 20 years ago, because my son was just out of high school. Uh, We went to Tulum, Mexico. Uh, Now, that's below Cancun, and uh, today I understand it's a real internet international jet set place, plus also the drug cartels have moved in. There's been some violence there. But back then... 
Uh, it was a sleepy place. Uh, we had a hotel on the beach. They only had electricity till nine o'clock at night when the generators turned off. Uh, and uh, we, it's a beautiful place, and there's a Mayan ruin nearby Tulum. In fact, that's what it's known for. But we went there, and it was very crowded. Beautiful. It's on the sea. It was very crowded. So we decided that we wanted to do something um, a little different, and we headed uh, in our Jeep inland to um, another Mayan ruin called Coba, C-O-B-A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we got there, it was pretty early in the morning. Uh, we had to wake up the guy at the ticket booth to even get him to sell us a ticket to go in. And this was my husband, my son, and me. And we walked through the jungle for maybe five, ten minutes, and then all of a sudden it opened up, and here was this pyramid um, that just towered up above the the um, the jungle, and it, you were allowed to climb it, uh, which you know in the United States, if there's something treasured uh, or historical, you usually aren't allowed to climb it. But we were all alone. And we worked our way up these steep steps, which was a little terrifying for me because I'm afraid of heights. Uh, And after a while, we finally made it to the top, which was a big sort of flat area, enough to stand. And there we were, towering above the jungle canopy, just three of us. And it seemed like we were alone in the world, you know, some sort of primeval experience. Uh, just like Indiana Jones would have done, since it was an old architectural, uh, uh, archaeological site. Sorry, that's, that's really uh, cool. So uh, that, that's the one that I'll mention. That that was pretty memorable. Yeah, no, I was I was worried that maybe there'd be flashbacks of, uh, you know, the natives maybe about to do some sacrifice or something. But no, this is uh, <laughs> that's all in the imagination. <laughs> and no Aztecs. <laughs> but as you as you mentioned it, uh, or I guess it was in the early '90s, and maybe they don't allow this anymore. But I had taken a trip to Mexico and north of Mexico City is Tenochtitlan with the Pyramid of the Sun, the Pyramid of the Moon, and uh, or is it Teotihuacan? Yeah, and got to climb Baza, very dry, didn't see the jungle, and uh, I'm I was very surprised that I could climb to the top of that, and that was quite an ordeal because it was pretty high and. I mean, it's just amazing when you think of the fact that they were built hundreds and hundreds of years ago, um, probably by hand, um, you know, with maybe some rudimentary tools. Uh, And, uh, you know, this one had, I guess, recently been reclaimed out of the the jungle by archaeologists. They were still working on a couple of the, the side buildings. But we only saw a guy on a bicycle and one other couple the whole morning. <laughs> wow. Well, I hear there are more cities in the jungle that, that still need to be uh, revealed. Yeah, there's um, an author, uh, Doug Preston. He, he writes um, books with another guy named Lincoln Child, uh, the uh, Pendergrass series. And he, there's a, 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 I think it's a documentary and a book of um, him finding, going with an expedition into the Central American jungle and uncovering a, an unknown city. And that was only like five years ago, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, very cool. Um, so in your travels, I know you, you talk about the people you run into. It, it almost seems like wherever you go, there's helpful people, friendly people. Um, have Have you ever run into anybody who is really nasty? Um, we've run into a few people. Um, the the one the one that I remember the most was in France, um, and you know the Fran- French have a bit of a reputation, which I think is mostly undeserved. Uh, but and it wasn't really to me. Uh, but we were at a market in Provence, and I was with a, a, another couple, and um, the, the the guy that I was with somehow had violated the rules of the line or something at the market when trying to buy something. Um, and the proprietor was really nasty to him. Um, and I spoke to him a little bit in French, uh, which I don't know very well, but enough to communicate, and that calmed him down a bit. But that was my probably the most memorable one. Another one was in um, Bali, um, in Indonesia, where we went to see a school. We were with a, a group uh, tour, and we went to see a school, and there were a bunch of 13-year-old boys who, I guess, didn't like being shown off as, you know, sort of exhibits for the American tourist, um, and they gave us the finger. Uh, I guess that works <laughs> even in the magical islands of Bali and Indonesia. <laughs> I guess but, that, that means yeah. the same thing over there, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess either they do or they picked it up from other American tourists. Who knows? Yeah, I think, you, but, I think, uh, I think yeah, it's only meaningful I, I to Americans. I understand that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So uh also wanted to ask you about food. Um, what's the weirdest thing you think you ate? Um, I'll tell you the weirdest thing I didn't eat, but my husband (laughs) did, which was guinea pig in, um, Peru. Uh, in Peru, in the, um, Andes (laughs) in the mountains. Yeah. They keep these, these huts outside, like, like their version of chicken coops. Uh Um, and at uh, special occasions, they bring out... Guinea pigs, uh, like the kind that, you know, were in my friends' rooms when I was a little kid at, uh, in elementary school, uh, in cages. But uh, my husband was brave enough to try it, but I have to admit, it, they brought it out, and all they'd done was, like, take the fur off. So it still looked like a guinea pig. Oh, so it was like cooked, on a, cooked on a spit over an open fire. <laughs> you know, it was. We were in a restaurant, so mm. I'm not sure how they cooked it, but something along that line. I mean, it was. You know, it was like you'd, if you just took a chicken and plucked it and <laughs> braised it on one side and <laughs> browned it on the other, and then they put it on the plate. It was they, just like, oh no, I can't. Did they put a little cherry in its mouth or something for decor? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Uh, uh, no, no. Um, uh, uh, but we have encountered some other odd foods around the world, and mostly I like to try, um, you know, and some aren't so odd. Uh, you know, maybe I show my small-town Pennsylvania ra- uh, uh, roots, but, you know, I'd never had snails until we went to France, so I tried them. They were okay. They tasted like butter. Um, and then um, in some of the um, 
Southeast Asian countries, uh, the things with snakes and stuff, I, I just wouldn't yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, we are going to take another break. I'm talking to Sherry Knowlton, the author of Beyond the Sunset, Volumes 1 and 2. We'll be right back. The Writers' Conference of Northern Appalachia takes place March 10th and 11th at Robert Morris University. This two-day conference brings together authors and enthusiasts interested in the literature of the region with the aim of recognizing past writers and helping current ones develop. Twenty workshops and presentations on poetry, heritage, historical fiction, as well as voice and marketing. Register at WCONA.com. I'm back with Sherry Knowlton, the author of Beyond the Sunset, Volumes 1 and 2, and uh, Sherry, I I was getting uh, a little bit concerned about the guinea pigs and all that, thinking maybe I'd try something like that. But when you got into the snakes, I'm like, nah, <laughs> I don't think I could eat that either. It's kind of like eels <laughs> for some reason. Now, I know eel is used in sushi and so on. But to, <clears throat> to talk about catching an eel and eating an eel, um, they're too snake-like for me. So that kind of grosses yeah. me out. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, I did want to transition over to, uh, you know, before these travel novels, you you had the Alexa Williams series. And, you know, you kind of took a break from that to write the travel books. But maybe talk a little bit about how does the travel segue into those? I, I know your protagonist does get around a bit. Okay, sure. Um, the, the Alexa Williams books... Um, are sort of like um, Nancy Drew for grown-ups. <laughs> uh, the heroine is, uh, lives here in south-central Pennsylvania in the Carlisle area, and she keeps stumbling across dead bodies, and then that gets her into all sorts of trouble um, every time. Um, the, the first book, Dead of Autumn, um, takes place exclusively here mm-hmm. in south-central Pennsylvania. Um, and then the next three, which are each a season, uh, dead of summer, dead of spring, dead of winter, um, also take place here primarily. But I do introduce um, Alexa to other places. Uh, she meets a guy in Volume 1 who becomes her boyfriend. Uh, he goes to Africa uh, because he's majored in wildlife um, protection and so she goes to visit him in Africa. Um, her parents buy a little farmhouse in uh, Umbria uh, near Tuscany and so she goes there. A couple of crucial scenes in one of the books takes place there. Uh, so she does get around a little bit and I get to share a little bit, little snippets of my travel uh, then in my final book, um, since I'd done the whole seasons thing, um, the final book so far, I should say, um, I took her to Africa. Um, her boyfriend got a special posting over there, and so the whole book takes place in Botswana, and it deals with elephant poaching. Uh, and I had a ball with that because... I actually uh, spent a month in Botswana researching it, even though I'd been there before. Um, But I really needed to refine some of the things. Um, So, uh, you know, I've sort of peppered my travels into the Alexa Williams series, but at heart it's a Pennsylvania, south-central Pennsylvania-based series. Yeah, and I should mention you also weave in a social issue or two into each one. 
and uh, yes, um, I, I the books between them have uh, dealt with everything from uh, women's issues and the right to choose to environmental issues like fracking um, and nuclear power, um, and also um, human trafficking. Uh, so my central Pennsylvania is pretty <laughs> has a lot going on uh, that Alexa just keeps stumbling into. She's quite a busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> so I know the the first book I, re- I remember as we were working on it. It has a connection to the Babes in the Woods, if I'm not mistaken, and and that whole mystery. Yes, um, the the first four books, the seasons books, mm-hmm. as I call them. Um, each have a historical subplot, uh, and the, the historical subplot in Dead of Autumn uh, deals with a, a local uh, true story um, uh, called The Babes in the Woods, and these three young girls, uh, like, I don't know, I think 8 to 14, uh, were found by hunters uh, one day back during the de- during the Depression in the 1930s, um, dead on a blanket in the woods. And um, the story is quite well known in the local area, and I decided to fictionalize it a bit because nobody really knows some of the details. Uh, Everybody involved in it is long past gone uh, from the earth. Uh, So I told the story through the eyes of the middle child, a little kid named Dewilla Noakes, and it's a very sad story, yeah. um, but it resonates a lot with people in the Pennsylvania area, but it's certainly a story that can resonate with people no matter where they live, uh, the death of three children. Yeah, I know there's still, if you drive down the road there, there's still that road sign that marks uh, the location. It's not an actual Pennsylvania historic marker, but it's painted to resemble one. And, uh, yeah, you- but you know, people, um, and it's very close to uh, my house, um, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that you know the story particularly caught my eye. But people still leave little teddy bears and flags. Um, you know, this is um, more close to a hundred years. I'm not yeah. quite there, but close to a hundred years since those girls were found, um, and people still remember them. Uh, and then. Um, after the book came out, I had so many people tell me my grandfather saw them in their casket in town or, you know, they knew this. They were uh, a doctor who was called to, to uh, di- uh, not diagnose, what's it called? Uh, not the, uh, they didn't do an autopsy, I don't think, but to, to look at the girls from a medical perspective mm-hmm. after they were found. It's amazing how many people still have ties to them. Yeah, well, it was a national story back then. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you while we still have a couple minutes was about the flower child angle here <laughs> and Woodstock. Uh, one of your novels has a Woodstock connection, too. So maybe just a couple minutes on uh, your Woodstock experience. The, the quote historical story uh, in the uh, book Dead of Summer right. uh, <laughs> takes place 
at Woodstock, um, and uh, it, of course, ties into the contemporary story at some point. I'm not going to tell you how, of course. You have to read the book. But uh, I based that Woodstock uh part of the story on my own, not on my own experiences, because nobody got killed uh, when I was at Woodstock. Um, and in fact, um, I think only a few people died, and they were for probably from drug overdoses. Um, but I, I was at Woodstock, um, I guess it was the summer after my freshman year of college, uh, and uh, it was interesting to sort of uh, tread back, uh, tread back to those days. Uh, you know, see what I could remember after almost fifty years, and what I couldn't remember. Uh, it turned out I had to do a lot of research. Uh, but they also say that anybody who remembers Woodstock wasn't really there. So. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, so when you were doing your research and reading about Woodstock, were there any memories that were jarred, or was it like, I don't remember any of this crap? It was very (laughs) different for me. (laughs) Um, You know, it's funny because I wouldn't say too many memories were jarred, but other than the blur, one of the things that's a blur is like what bands played when and which ones did I see. And, you know, I've seen the movies a couple of times, so it gets a little confusing. The, the one part I'll say that my experience was different than that of many is I was with a group from Chambersburg who did a lot of camping and things like that. And we've, treated this as like a weekend camping trip. Nobody knew what was going to, that Woodstock was going to explode like it did, but we were prepared. We had tents, we had food, we had all the things that you would take for a weekend when you had to camp out. And that wasn't the case for lots, probably hundreds or thousands of people who were there who just jumped in a car and came. Well, look at that. You were prepared to travel even way back then. So, uh, hey, we, I was a Girl Scout. Yeah. prepared. So, in the last minute here, uh, just give us a sense of what you're writing now or what your plans are here in the coming months. Right now, I am back with Alexa Williams um, I, in the Dead on the Delta book, which is the fifth in the series. I did leave things in Alexa's life hanging a bit. Uh, and uh, I wanted to, at the very least, complete that th- that cycle in her life, and and you know, tell everybody what happens next. But uh, I'm in the the early stages of it um, because between the pandemic and the marketing for um, Beyond the Sunset, um, you know, I've probably a little tardy in getting to writing it, but I have uh, several chapters, and um, hopefully you will see it soon. All right. Looking forward to that. Listen, Sherry, it's been great having you on. Look to have look forward to having you back when that new novel's ready to go. Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview. I, it was fun. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.